0: Welcome to The Influential Nonprofit, the show for nonprofit leaders to grow their influence so they can grow their income and impact. Now, here's your host, Marianne Dirsch.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Influential Nonprofit. I am your host, Marianne Dirsch, and I work with nonprofits on creating more influence so they can create more income and impact. And I'm also the author of Courageous Communication How Codependence is Making Your Nonprofit Brand Boring and What to Do About It. And I am here today with my good friend, Melanie Sheets. I'm gonna give you the formal bio and then the informal bio. All right. Melanie and her husband are proud adoptive parents of two children, and she has 29 years of nonprofit management experience. And she joined the Foster and Adaptive Care Coalition as executive director in 1999. And under her guidance, the agency developed the groundbreaking programs Extreme Recruitment and 30 Days to Family. And Melanie has been honored in the St. Louis Business Journal's 50 Most Influential Businesswomen of 2019 Award. Wow. North American Council on Adoptable Children's National Adoption Advocate Award, the Congressional Angels and Adoption Award and women of the well award and she has a bs and accountancy from miami university and this doesn't even start to describe how amazing you are <laughs> so welcome melanie
0: <laughs> i am so happy to be here but you know i just do my thing just doing the best we can every day
1: well i want to say so first of all i know melanie really well we've worked together for a long time and also Most of you don't know. I have three children adopted from foster care. So we have an affinity there. And, and this organization I have a deep relationship with because you've been my client. I've been your client. You've called me in a panic. I've called you in a panic. (laughs) Right. And so I've, I received services from you and I've helped you grow your organization. And so we have this lovely give and take. And when I think about what's right in the nonprofit organization, You know, you are a great model for that. And so I want to talk with you today about, you know, how you built this, you know, amazing garden of of growth and wealth and resources, you know, for the kids that you serve. And first, though, I kind of just want to talk about you, how you got into this, why you do this, why you wake up every day and be like, I'm an executive director. Woo, let's do this. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, I will tell the very short version of the story is I was in the May Company's executive training program many, many years ago. It was great, but then I started doing some nonprofit work with the American Red Cross, and I said, hey, this nonprofit stuff sure is a lot more fun, and decided to make the switch, started out in development, and um, always knew I wanted to have some sort of a leadership role, didn't know exactly what that was going to be. But then my husband and I came to St. Louis and was named interim director at the Foster Care Coalition at that time. And about a month later, uh, everybody involved thought, gosh, this is a good thing we got going on. Now, my very first date with my husband, I said, I hope you know I'm gonna adopt children someday. So within about two months of starting at the coalition, he and I were in our foster parent classes, which you remember, Marianne. I do. And so both, um, you know, my vocation and my vocation were fortunate enough to come together.
1: Yes. Yeah, and that wakes me up every day. Yeah, right. It's lovely when that happens. So just give me an overview of what the agency does. You know, like, just give me the, the broad view of, of what you provide.
0: Okay. Before we started working with you, Marianne, if you asked me what we did at the coalition, I would give you a long list of our 14 programs. And of course that would be so boring and have no impact. So what you taught me to do was speak in words that are more clear. And so at the Foster and Adaptive Care Coalition, we believe that every child deserves a place to call home. And everything that we do, and you created those words for us, oh my God. 15 years ago, I think. Probably, yeah. And they still ring true. Mm -hmm. And everything that we create comes back to that. And what's so fun is, to me, that that line that you created for us, just, I mean, I hear it in the public all the time. I hear people that I don't even know are related to our organization in some way, and they'll talk about it. So it really works.
1: Yay, that's the power of branding. Mm -hmm. Yes. and also. When you say like, you know, every child, a place to call home. And now we can say, how do you do that? Mm -hmm.
0: And we still use the five basic tenets that again, you created for us so long ago. And we, Examples of that include that, you know, we provide um, last best effort for a child who needs an adoptive home, that we will provide support for foster adoptive families, no matter where they live in the St. Louis area. So again, it's not a laundry list of what our programs are, but more, it's more the essence of every program that we do. And you really taught me how to how to look at it from the you know 10,000 foot view so that it makes sense to the average person and then they want to become
1: involved. Awesome. Tell me a little bit about what you do do for kids, you know, and and the outcomes you provide for families. And then I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that happened in COVID and all of those things. I think that's such a was a transformative experience for you and your team.
0: Oh, it was. So You know, when I talk about the kind of work that we do, I always start with how very fortunate we are that 31 years ago, very smart social workers in Missouri and Illinois came together because for the first time, there were more children entering foster care than there were foster homes. And so, you know, we're the only organization of our kind in the country. So I think, first of all, showing that gratitude for what it was forward-thinking in St. Louis when gosh, you know, we have so many problems, but we also have strengths. And so starting from that position of strength, and then really talking about how we collaborate with other agencies. So uh, Lucian Children Family Services, a Missouri Baptist, when they have a child on their caseload that they can't find a home for, they turn to the coalition who has a luxury of time and skill set, improve skill set, increased skill set to help find a home for those kids. So You're really rooting it in that we're not the only ones doing this work, but by working together, you know, there's more strength and people really connect with that, right? Because they don't want to give to a nonprofit that just thinks that they're the only ones who can do it. They want to see us working together.
1: Yeah. And the interesting thing about when you talk about time, you have the luxury of time is two of the programs you created compress time for the kids in foster care, right? Which is a big thing, you know, that love kids, like, in the system being, you know, the system in in my experience, you know, the, the system takes months and months and months because it's the courts and the in the juvenile justice system, and things like that, which move slowly and yet children develop quickly, you know, and need intervention and stability quickly. And there was always a break in that. And I would love for you to share about extreme recruitment and 30 days to family.
0: Sure. So at the top, you said that I have a bachelor's of science in accountancy. Yeah. So the first thing is that, you know, I don't come to the work with a preconceived notion of, oh, this is how it's always been done, right? I just didn't have that kind of training before I came to the coalition. So it was taking us about two years to find an adoptive home for a child in foster care, and which is entirely too long. And it was because we were doing everything in a linear manner. You know, here was this child ready for adoption. We would put the child on TV. If that didn't work, the newspaper, if that didn't work, said so we were doing everything in a very linear manner. That's going to take two years. Yeah. So instead we said, we're going to do all those things at once. And we're going to layer on a private investigator to help look into the child's background, to overlook aunties, un- uncles, anyone who has a connection with that child. And Between you and me, I set an arbitrary time frame of 12 to 20 weeks. And you know how long it takes to find an adoptive family for a child? 12 to 20 weeks. weeks. (laughs) (laughs) So now I mean I would have adjusted that over time if it needed adjusting, but it just doesn't. I mean, that's how much effort it takes. And we've got very clear benchmarks, you know, by the fourth week, you better have found all the paternal relatives, you know, the whole thing. So yeah. And and after that, you know, and these are kids who've been in foster care a long time. You know that, Marianne, right? Yes. I mean, all the traditional adoption hasn't worked. And so that's why they've come to the attention of our agency. And so a couple of years after we got really, really good at finding family members. We would find an average of uh, 85 family members for each of the kids that we served. And we said, why are we waiting until a child's been in foster care two, five, ten years to start this search? Why aren't we doing it when the child first enters foster care? And that's how 30 Days to Family was started. And so that's when a child first comes into foster care. If there's not a relative already identified for that child, then we want to start that search. We'll find an average of 150 family members in only 30 days, and those kids, more than 70% of kids are placed with relative kin within 30 days. Last year, I think it was 82%. And you know what? I just kind of made up the 30 days number. Now it was based on some research. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, I mean, you know, it's it's all about just thinking about how to work, do work differently and then having really smart people do the work for you.
1: Yes. And also what I hear is like, yeah, there's the data, but then there's just like intuition or or, or just like try it just let's just say a time frame and see if it works you know and i and i do feel like that's sometimes the hesitancy of you know in programs like this like you know just let's just put a put a number to it and see what happens mm-hmm. and it turns out that hey that was a pretty good guess but sometimes you know we can just kind of make it up and it works because that's how ideas happen and
0: then of course you know, have the, I'm sorry, to interrupt. and then, of, and of course, then just to have the attitude of we're going to shift constantly mm-hmm. and that is
1: okay because that's how we know we're doing things better. Exactly. And the, and the exploration of let's try it and see what happens not Let's try it. And if it doesn't work, we're failing. It's like, Hey, let's try it. And that's, you know, that's how innovation happens, you know, and these, and now these programs though are, are being implemented broader than your organization. Oh, yes. Across the country, coast to coast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So different states and agencies are adopting these models as well.
0: Yep. We actually started last year, um, started, uh, spun off a new nonprofit called the Institution for Innovation and Child Welfare. And um, they're, they're housed here. They're actually former coalition staffers and they're the ones doing that replication because our board said very wisely the mission of the Foster and Adoptive Care Coalition is to serve the Metro St. Louis area and so we need to be true to that. So it's it's been it's been a wonderful experiment.
1: Yeah, so then the spin-off organization that handles the replication and implementation of this in other areas, and then you stay focused on your area. Exactly.
0: Oh, huge news. We were finally listed in the California Clearinghouse for child welfare. So we are now a rated, 30 Days of Family is now a rated program as evidence-informed. We're not evidence-based yet. Take a couple more published articles for that. Gotcha. And then- We just got funding to uh, study our educational advocacy program that I know you're very familiar with, Marianne. Yes,
1: I am, (laughs) because my children have had advocates through the educational advocacy program. So we are now in
0: the middle of a study with Washington University in St. Louis about that to to see about the the effectiveness and hopefully related cost savings.
1: Amazing. So I want to talk a little bit now around oh, you know, everyone has a COVID story. <laughs> and also how you experienced that really changed and benefited your organization in a lot of ways. So I'd just love for you to to share with me the adjustments you made and the lessons learned. Yeah, I
0: will. You know, we were fortunate enough to work with you, what, about a year before COVID hit on a couple different projects. And, and those benefited us in, in a variety of ways. And the first is the messaging. So remember you worked with us on a, we were developing some language around a plan giving campaign uh-huh. and you, and uh, we brought together a couple of focus groups and which you facilitated for us. And I was just Floored when I would hear people in the focus groups talk about, well, remember this was in your newsletter, and then you sent out this story about this child who was matched with this person. I mean, things are like, I don't even remember. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just being, you know, we have yeah. hundreds of children.
1: Right. Yeah. But something really, I mean, you know, like jumped in them about that story, like that it really captured them. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And so before COVID started, that's really, you know, where. I just been kind of, my mind was churning like, wow, people, you know, we're putting the stories out just like Marion told us to do. Right. And we're, we're utilizing all of our platforms to make sure that, you know, we're giving this wall of noise and information out there, but people are really listening and they're sharing it with each other. And, you know, when you do that in your office, you don't really know what what the end result is all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) So when, COVID first hit, we changed radically the way we work with our families. And like all nonprofits, we're always focused on our outcomes, how what's a so what of the work that we're doing. But we have a resale store, which shut down also in mid-March, temporarily, of course. And we redeployed those three people to start meeting foster families where they were. Whatever you need. You need help applying for unemployment? We don't know how to do that. We're gonna figure it out. We're gonna walk you through it. You're a 97 year old grandma. We're gonna, you know, you tell us what to type. We're gonna type it. We're gonna do whatever it takes. You don't have transportation. All you have is your your scooter, your wheelchair scooter. Okay, we're gonna to go to the local food bank. We're gonna pick things up. We're gonna drop it off on your front porch. Literally, whatever it took. And we ended up serving more than 1,000 additional families last year than we would have normally. And then also keeping in mind, you know, the branding, the words, we created something called the Coalition Care Line, where any local foster adoptive family or caseworker, anybody involved in the system, we had people from the courts call, and they needed help figuring out either how to get a resource or how to work through a process. We just did it for them. You know, what are the outcomes of that? I don't know. What's the outcome that, you know, when there was no toilet paper, we got people toilet paper? I don't know, except that it really developed then this deeper relationship, right. Between our clients and what we do. So that was very gratifying.
1: And giving meaning to like, I was just thinking about the three people that worked at the ReStore and like how much richer their life is for knowing, like being a part of that end, you know, and, and, and also I feel like getting toilet paper is a really significant outcome. (laughs) You don't have any, like, I feel like that would be like feeling really good for you. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, you're right. They've absolutely,
0: absolutely loved it. So now how this all relates to COVID. So once a year, after we close out the end of the year, because we're, we're a calendar fiscal year, we do something that we call our gratitude edition. This is a print newsletter that yes, has some stories about what happened in 2020. But literally, if you give $1 or one hour to the coalition, we are going to recognize you in this newsletter. It's 26 pages and it is a pain to put together. But for the first time ever, we counted how many people have been involved in the coalition in, in the last year. And it was more than ever. In a year when we didn't have a normal 764 volunteers because we didn't have that many volunteer opportunities, right? four thousand six. 100 donors and volunteers make the coalition's engine run. And those are people who know what we're doing as an organization, because we're using the words that you helped us develop, Marianne. We're using the communication channels that you helped us develop. And it just, um, I'm just, I, I get overwhelmed with gratitude. I mean, I really do.
1: And what a difference it is to be overwhelmed with gratitude than to be overwhelmed <laughs> yes. and, and feel like, cause I know, and a lot of people who are listening to this, maybe that executive director, that CEO that feels lonely, that feels like they have to do it alone. That feels like they have to, you know, if, if, if they don't show up, it doesn't get done. They carry this organization on their back and, and the influence that you have and, 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 marshaling and it takes time right this 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 work doesn't happen overnight it takes time to build this groundswell of support and it just feels like you're you're kind of like riding a wave you know what i mean instead of like drowning <laughs> right. i mean to me and even and and when and when that happens how much richer you are and like the staff and everyone it you're coming from a place of power and connectedness and and like safety and support and and knowing that no matter what happens your people will show up and, and in evidence they did, right? Because you, you just told me a story and I'd love for you to share it about, you know, like the marshalling of resources and, and what you asked for you received.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in a normal year, we would give about 2,500 clothing items to kids in foster care. And last year it was 11,000. And this is with our this is with our resale store being closed. Now, our resale store gives items for free to kids in foster care, but you know, we're open to the general public. And so that's how we make money. But it was getting to be, you know, it was, it was a really cold spring last year. I don't know if you remember. And so, you know, everybody was wearing coats and everything, like well past April, and even into early May. And then all of a sudden it was May, and parents didn't have anything that fit their kids. Right. And so some volunteers and our in our resale store uh, folks figured out this system whereby we on the development team would send out an email once a week. By the way, when we measure our our, um, email responses, we always have at least 25 percent open rate, which, you know, is huge. Yeah but it's even higher if we include a call to action, right? I know this is not rocket science, but. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so let's talk about why each of them doesn't have a call to action. We're going to put that on your next. All one. right. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> this is like right.
0: my own therapy. So, But our calls to action then in the spring, the summer in particular, where we would say we need size 12 boy shorts you know, and people would just, and they would come on Saturday between nine and noon and just drop off bags full. And we would say, we need everything laundered. We need everything labeled, the whole thing. And, you know, most people, when they bring things to a resale store, they just dump, right? They didn't. They knew this is exactly what our kids would need. We then, we would have huge bags full every weekend. We would let them sit for 72 hours, We would then cull through them, put together outfits for kids, and every single child in foster care last summer who wanted new outfits got them. Because the next weekend, those boys' shorts that were donated, the next weekend they were put directly into the trunks of foster families. And it just was, it was just a beautiful kind of circle of communication and caring and giving and receiving and Mary you know, with our little wishes program, which is held during the holidays, um, which is toys for kids in foster care. We sold out. When did we sell out?
1: I think December 10th okay. or 9th or 10th. I'm going to tell you, you yeah. sold out so fast. I didn't even get to make a grant a wish this year. <laughs> they were sorry. gone. Wishes were gone. (laughs) But people were just dying to do something,
0: you know? And so just being able to have that, those calls to action were really powerful. We did an online fundraiser, which about killed me getting running, but our our goal was to raise $200,000 and it was, we raised 90% more than that. And, you know, now we called it Foster Hope Day, right? And it was a week after the election. So people wanted some hope, but just continuing to build on those lessons that you taught us and how to engage and how to communicate. And, you know, this is it. This is really what it is. We work very hard to treat everyone who comes in contact with the organization, whether you're a client, a donor, a volunteer, to treat you like a member of the family, And, you know, I guess I'm realizing this year more than ever, it really works.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now look at the family. You have 4,600 relatives in your family. I know. know, And and that, that, that just knowing that deep knowing that this is the coalition, right? Your broader coalition that will respond when asked, you know, and that's like, and that is that development of that. Which I've seen you grow into over the years, just being able to ask for what you want and get people to easily enroll in your vision and 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 not just like give it, but like give it in the way. like they're showing up with that stuff just sorted and ordered just how you wanted it because they they, you know, they want to do right for the kids. And that's because over the years, you've just communicated so effectively as to what their needs were and made them feel because they are you know, like part of this family. And, and I really, and I mean, and I feel it even when I go into the office, you know, and and for those who are listening, but how their office is set up, you know, it's all very welcoming and, 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 and it's just very warm and that's all part of it, you know, from the messaging that goes out to the internal, how you all communicate internally to how people are, are received when they come through the door. And it makes a difference then because when you're a value to others, they will be a value to you, right? That's the Mm -hmm. point of influence. And you're a value. You help people feel connected, feel like family. And then when you need something, they're responding. And that's that's the cycle, right? That's the cycle that I help create. You know, it's like when I'm a value to others, they will be a value to me. And and what I feel like in the nonprofit spaces, we get a little bit like we need our needs met. You know, please help, please help, please help. And really what it is, is how can I be a value to you? And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and in, in your life, and then I know you'll be a value to me when I need it. And just reframing that, which is what we've been doing over all of these years.
0: Absolutely. We have, and it's been fun as heck. I know. Now, now let me uh, redirect the conversation a little bit. Okay. You don't know this. So speaking of family, sometimes families are functional and sometimes they're not so functional, right? Mm-hmm. And part of your messaging is, that, and I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher the words, but, you know, to be out front of communication and you're not always going to make everybody happy with whatever you say, but just take a position, right? Mm -hmm. So of course we had the killing of Mr. Floyd. And then several weeks later, there was just a hideous story of an African-American teen um, that was killed, not here, elsewhere. And uh, Cornelius. And so I wrote a piece that then we included, um, you know, an eblast, social media um, to say his name and to call for change. And that silence was not appropriate and we were no longer going to be silent. Now we're doing a lot of stuff internally at the coalition regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion right now. That's a story for a different time. So, you know, the question was, okay, we're going to put this out there. What's going to happen? Are a bunch of people going to unsubscribe? Now we have a list of over 10,000 people, two unsubscribed. Wow. Now I did have one of those be very ugly and it still haunts me to this day. The response was silence is nice. I don't want that person involved with my agency. hmm I don't care. They could be a $50,000 donor. I don't care. I want people with hearts for what we do. Mm -hmm. And if that's the way they feel, they can go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So thank you for giving us that
1: lesson. You are welcome. And usually when you do take a stand, you know, first of all, it's so powerful and it it typically happens. Like you said, people are like, yeah, of course. And there's a couple people, they weren't your people anyway. That's right. That's right. Even if it was a hundred or 200 people or whatever who unsubscribed, that's, that's, they weren't your people, you know, and not trying to force the relationship. Like I have to keep this donor or this subscriber because (gasps) that's scarcity. It's like, you know what, the right, when I release them, then the right people will drop in. Well, so I'm making space for the right people and that you took a stand. And I know you, sometimes you take a deep breath. I did a few blog posts and articles myself around that. And I like, you know, I'm like, Oh God, you know, talking about my kids and, and yeah, it can be really, really. So there, that's what happens. You know, when you're, when you're in alignment with your true beliefs, then you attract people who share those beliefs and you don't have to do the dance for people who, who don't. That's right. Oh, oh gosh. I did not know that. Oh <laughs> yes. Okay. We're like, we're almost out of time. I, I, I want to ask two questions and they're really quick answers. Okay. So what do you feel like is coming next for the foster care? You no, know, like what's, what's the next thing? Like what's next for the industry or for your organization?
0: Ah, So as part of our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, we are finally very, very, very late into the game, Marianne, focusing on the fact that 70% of our children in foster care are African-American, but only 13% of our foster parents are African-American. So you are familiar with an agency that was around in the 1990s called Respond, was started by African-American foster adoptive families specifically to recruit families in the African-American community. And they report that it was a lack of awareness and certainly a lack of access that causes that kind of disproportionality. But we went to the founders of Respond and said, look, we're going to go out and try to raise a lot of money and start a unit, recreate the organization Respond as a program of the coalition and they've given us their blessing. So we've got a $1.2 million ask out to a very large funder. I would appreciate if everybody could send me good vibes. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Um, And and that's where we're gonna go next. I mean, obviously we want all kids to be placed with relatives if all possible, but if not, you know, we at least wanna give children options, right? Yeah. We also are working in the legislature to um, make sure that uh, foster families are not discriminated against because of culture or religion. We've got an increasing number of Muslim children entering the foster care system. Not enough families, and the families that we do have are discriminated against routinely. So that's that. And then this is, I won't say any more about the next thing because it's too deep, but what is going to drive child welfare in the next 10 years is treatment foster care that is not having children live in residential facilities, but have them live in the community with highly trained, clinically based um, support in a foster home. So that's where we're headed.
1: All right. And that sounds like so many strides forward and so different than even when I was in the system, like the constant evolution. Okay, and then my last question Is now you know this is this is my one, this is the little personal here. So you know, I love karaoke. Oh, yes, I do. Yes, yes, I think you've even seen some karaoke (laughs) from me. Now, the coalition's offices are over this little bar that has karaoke, and said some nights we just have a meeting, and I just be like. Oh, hon, I'm just going to tell my husband, I'm just going to grab some dinner. And oh, look, karaoke's starting. Yeah. <laughs> huh, where have that happened? So, if when's when, you know, when we can go sing again, what would be your go to karaoke song to sing? There's only one, Marianne. Then if that's an easy question to answer. What is it? We are family. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> that's right. <laughs> What are you singing these days? Uh, you're not supposed to ask me questions. Um, oh, um, <laughs> it's a Fergie song, Milf Money.
0: Oh, I know that song. Do <laughs> you I know really know that song?
1: <laughs> yes. Here's the yeah. Oh, and you know Iggy Azalea, Fancy. I'm like the old white lady rapper.
0: That's so funny.
1: Yes, and yeah, and I'm working on some stuff too. I really like. It. <laughs> Well, yeah. ring of fire goes through my brain a lot these days. <laughs> Bring a <up> fire. <laughs> yeah. And so um, this was a great conversation. I would love if anybody wants to learn more about your work, where can they contact you or how can they find you?
0: Yes. At www.foster-adopt.org. Uh, we also do a monthly lunch and learn that we're now doing virtually, which is an overview of what our organization does. We think we've got it down pat. It's just another way to welcome people to the coalition family. So if anybody would ever like to sit in on one to see how we have learned from you, Marianne, to just yeah. what we
1: do that, that'd be great. I would suggest registering for a lunch and learn because these are very powerful tools to see like who's warm. You know, like, like, you know, like who, who wants to learn more, who wants to take that next step in without having to like make a big commitment, you know, or, or like give that. So it's a nice way to see, you know, who would like to take that step forward or at least interested in having that conversation. And you do, you do do them really well. They, it's a system and it's always feels fresh, you know, very kind of you to say, all right. <laughs> all right Thank you so much. I had a blast. I really appreciate it. Love you so much. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll see you next week on The Influential Nonprofit.
0: Thanks for listening to The Influential Nonprofit with your host, Marianne Dirsch. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Also, check out the TheInfluentialNonprofit.com for more resources on growing your influence so you can raise more and do more.